you got Matthew chapter 1, I want to make a note before we read this record of names. Uh, Many of them are Old Testament characters that you may recognize. Since we've Since I've started using the New King James Version, you'll find this is a place where it can be very helpful since the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament was translated from Greek. Names don't always appear the same in different languages, so the New King James identifies these people by the names that you are familiar with in the Old Testament. So if you're following along in the uh, King James Version, you'll be able to note maybe Maybe you don't recognize the name Ozias from the end of verse 8, but that is King Uzziah from the Old Testament. Or Ezekias at the end of verse 9, it's helpful to know that that is Hezekiah from the Old Testament. Okay, So you might note that the, these are the record of the names that you will, as you'll recognize them from the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amenadab. Amenadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abiah, and Abiah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Amon, and Amon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot Abiud, and Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, and Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliud, Eliud begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Nowadays, with the advancement of DNA technology, it's become fairly commonplace to sign up for some online service that will help you trace your family tree. Just spit into this test tube or swab your cheek with this Q-tip and return it in the prepaid mailer and six to eight weeks later, you're ready to explore your ancestry. When you do that, just brace yourself for what you're going to find. 
More than one person has used DNA to dig into their family tree only to find out that tree has a couple of branches that they were not aware of. It's been about two years ago that my sister sent in DNA to an ancestry site. She was hoping to expand the family tree and also maybe prove that we have a legitimate claim to some Scottish inheritance we don't. Instead of finding out that we're Scottish royalty, she ended up discovering a sister we never knew we had. That, you can imagine, came as a bit of a shock. I mean, we all knew that before the Lord had intervened in my father's life to save him, he had a bit of a wild streak, and as best we can tell, he never knew that he had a daughter that was older than all of us named Christine. Everybody's first reaction to what the website told us was uncertainty, right? This can't be true until I looked her up on Facebook and I saw her picture. And it's like, I didn't require a recount of the DNA test to figure out that, yeah, that that woman's related to us. I mean, for the record, she's wonderful, right? She's she's a nurse. She's a born-again believer. She's a great person. I mean, she's my sister. How could she be anything less than wonderful, right? She's just great. From the very first sentence of his gospel, Matthew tells us he intends to prove the Lord Jesus is, verse 1, the promised seed of Abraham and the promised son of David. Now, he doesn't have the luxury of sending in a little bit of Jesus' DNA to Ancestry.com and, you know, take the results and publish it on his blog in an article. If you've ever wondered why there are sections of Scripture devoted to essentially recording long genealogies and family trees, here's why. It's not an accident. It's, y'all, it's not so that if you are doing your read through the Bible in a year, you get to those first nine chapters of uh, First Chronicles and feel all the excitement like you're reading an ancient Hebrew phone book, right? This is all part of God's plan. This genealogy authenticates that Jesus is the promised Messiah. The names here are vitally important because they connect the Old Testament to the New Testament. We've got here, we just read 17 verses. There are It covers 42 generations. A total of 51 names are listed that covers a span of about 2,000 years. But it's important for you to know, first of all, this is not a comprehensive list. This is a representative list. Look at what Matthew says in verse 17. He says, All the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ, until the Messiah, are 14 generations. In other words, what Matthew is telling us is that he is not trying to list every single name in the genealogy in the family tree of Jesus. That is not necessary in order to prove that Jesus is the Messiah King Matthew claims for him to be. If you want to see a more comprehensive family tree than this, then you can go to Luke's Gospel, where Luke traces Jesus' family line all the way back to Adam and Eve. 
later on, I'll try to point out to you where these two lists, where Matthew's and Luke's differ, where they split apart. What, what Matthew is doing is he's telling us in verse 17, he is breaking up the history of Israel into three big sections, three great epics. Between the calling of Abraham to the rule of King David, he gives 14 generations, 14 proofs of the ancestry of Jesus. From David until the time of the Babylonian captivity, he gives another 14 names from that span. And then from the Babylonian captivity till the birth of Jesus, he gives another 14 names. And that's enough to prove his point. He is not, he's telling us intentionally, he is not including everybody. He purposefully left some names off the list. He had easy access to some of the names he chose to leave off. He could have made this list longer. For, the exa- for example, at the end of verse 8, between Joram and Uzziah, we know, as well as Matthew, that there are three other kings. There is Ahaziah and Joash and Amaziah, and he's left them off the list. He doesn't need to put down every single name. When he says Joram begot Uzziah, that word begot means Joram is an ancestor of Uzziah. That is inarguably true, and Matthew says this is evidence enough. What's fascinating then is knowing that he's made choices about who he's going to leave off the list. That also tells us Matthew made choices of who he's going to include on this list, right? And some of those people, some of the choices that he makes are choices that no other writer of Scripture seems to make, right? He includes, very unusually, he includes women in this genealogy five different times. All the other genealogies we read talks about this man begot his son who begot the next son. Matthew includes women on the list. And part of the reason he does that, Randy talked about in the Sunday school class, Genesis 3.15, there was the promise that there would be a seed of the woman who would come and defeat Satan. And he's presenting Jesus as that seed. So he's showing women on the list. And he takes, as he makes this family tree, he takes some of the shocking branches, some of the surprising little finds that, that everybody discovers in their family history. And instead of leaving them off the list, Matthew highlights them. He includes in this list prostitutes and adulterers and liars and thieves and murderers and at least one man who is specifically cursed by God. The names on this list include men and women, Jews and Gentiles. You have the highest and lowest of society from kings to shepherds. It is a listing of scandal and sin with all the faults and failings that can be found in humanity. Even, even, even the most righteous names on this list are abject failures when it comes to satisfying God with the exception of one man. This genealogy begins in verse 1 and ends in verse 16 with the same name, and it is the name that is above every name. It is the name to which every knee on earth and in heaven and in hell itself will bow down and recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
His given name, Matthew tells us, is Jesus. Well, you know, this is the same, this would have been a very common Jewish name. This is the same name as in the Old Testament, the, the man named Joshua. It would have been in Hebrew, is pronounced Yeshua, right? And it, it's a name that means Yahweh is salvation. And that is a perfect name for this perfect man. His title is Christ. Some people hear Jesus Christ as if Christ is Jesus' last name. It's not. It is a, a title. The word Christ in the New Testament means anointed. In the Old Testament, the word Messiah means anointed. So everywhere you see the word Christ in the New Testament, when it says Jesus Christ, it's just proclaiming Jesus is that Old Testament Messiah. He is the anointed one of God who God would provide to save sinners. This is the genealogy, Matthew says, of Jesus the Messiah. And it is absolute proof of his authority and it entitles him alone to the throne of David. Only Jesus can be the Messiah King promised from the Old Testament. The promise that was made to Abraham was that in his seed would all the nations of the earth be blessed. And Jesus is that son of Abraham who blesses all the nations of the earth through the gospel and faith in him. He can give all kinds of people everlasting life. The promise to David was that a son of David, a descendant of David, would rule and reign forever, and Jesus alone is that son of David, the promised king of the ages. The genealogy recorded in these verses would have been absolutely demanded by the Jewish audience to whom Matthew is writing. They would have required this. This is precisely why when the books of the New Testament were were collated, they were collected and put together, Matthew's book was placed first, not because Matthew's book was written first. Honestly, when you put them all on a line, Matthew's was probably written in the middle somewhere. But Matthew presents that perfect connection from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He is building that bridge. Any of us could give ourselves the title of king and even designate, well, here's the scope of my reign. Doesn't that sound nice? Here's, here is Braden. He is the king of Elmwood. You got to prove it, right? And this is what Matthew does. Jesus is the son of David. He is the promised Messiah king. And here's the proof that you need to know that it's true. What's also truly amazing is how God sovereignly intervened for this genealogy to exist, for Matthew to be able to record it, and then immediately shut down any potential for anyone else to claim this heritage. About 40 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, right around A.D. 70, the Roman army actually came and destroyed Jerusalem and all the genealogical records like this would have been wiped from history. Listen, there are still Jews to this day who say that they are awaiting their Messiah, but they have to know there is never going to be a child born who can establish that claim. 
the record of Messiah's genealogy was written down right here, and then the rest of the records were destroyed. So you either accept Jesus as the Messiah king from the Old Testament, or you'll never be able to accept anybody. It is impossible that there will ever be another verifiable claim to the title Son of David, Son of Abraham. Now listen closely, because when we come to the end of this list, I want you to understand this isn't the genealogy of Jesus' bloodline after all. Remember the word begot means is the ancestor of, right? Well, look at verse 16, and you'll see that Jacob is the ancestor of Joseph. Where does it say that Joseph is the ancestor of Jesus? It doesn't. It simply says that Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom, of Mary, was born Jesus, who is called the Christ, who is called the Messiah. Legally speaking, Joseph is the adoptive father of Jesus, but Joseph is not the birth father of Jesus. If you want to read a record of the physical ancestry of Jesus traced back through Mary, then you need to go to Luke's gospel because that's what Luke's gospel does. Matthew gives the genealogy of Jesus through his adoptive father, Joseph. And as we go through this in a moment, you might be shocked to find out why it is he does this. As we read this, we might be tempted to call this the the beautiful and magnificent family tree of the Messiah. But I'm telling you, this is not necessarily a family tree to be proud of. If we went back through your family tree, through family tree for 42 generations, what kind of scoundrels do you think we would uncover? There is not an occasional black sheep in this family. Verses 1 through 16 is an entire flock of black sheep from whom the perfect Lamb of God would miraculously come. So let's look through this list of names and this genealogy and see why it is not a beautiful family tree. It is a scandalous family tree. In verse 1, Abraham, I'm sorry, in verse 2, Abraham is the first name. What we know of Abraham is he was an idol worshiper, called by God and given a precious promise. But not only was he an idol worshiper before he was called by God, he was an adulterer after called by God. At one point, he left his wife Sarah to languish in the harem of an Egyptian king. He fathered a child by a servant girl and eventually banished both that woman and her child. His son Isaac would have been raised to have faith in God, but Isaac also was frequently disobedient. And Isaac's two sons, Esau and Jacob, Isaac was so determined to bless Esau, contrary to the command of God, that Isaac had to be tricked into blessing Jacob. And in that process, you see him there in verse 2, Jacob proved himself to be a deceitful little mama's boy. Listen, it was Randy who called him a mama's boy this morning in Sunday school. 
He was just as wicked as Esau. But by God's grace, he was blessed. God would rename Jacob to Israel, and his 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's what verse 2 is describing. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. But listen, this is where the family tree really gets sort of a a smutty family history coming around. Look at verse 3. Judah begat Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This is where we find the first woman mentioned in this record. Now, you know this story? It is one of the most disgusting accounts of Scripture. Genesis 38 records this story of how there was this girl, Tamar, who was married to one of Judah's sons. I mean, if you want to find a story where there is no good guys, just go and read Genesis 38. Judah had three sons. He married off his oldest son to this girl named Tamar, but they were childless, and when that son died, it became the legal responsibility of the second brother to marry Tamar and have children in his brother's name. But this man named Onan refused to do it. What he didn't refuse to do is have sex with Tamar. He, he abused her, but refused to have, in one of the most graphic and disgusting accounts in Scripture, refused to have children by her. And that mistreatment so angered the Lord that the Lord killed Onan. And now there's one other brother who she should marry, but he's too young. Judah tells her, well, you just, just wait. He'll grow up. He'll be old enough. Just wait. Your, your father-in-law, Judah, is going to take care of you. But it seems he never intended to. He never intended to have the family do the right thing by her. He was content to have her mistreated and then cast aside and forgotten. And so instead... Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute. And unbeknownst to Judah, she comes and seduces Judah, her father-in-law, who agrees to pay her later. And in order to promise that he'll pay her later, he gives her his ring and a bracelet and his staff. He didn't know that he'd just slept with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And when he sent someone back with payment, she was gone, right? He, this woman just disappeared. Well, more than a coincidence, Tamar was pregnant with her father-in-law's child. And when Judah found out Tamar was pregnant, his reaction was absolute fury, right? Well, she's supposed to be waiting to marry my youngest son. How, how dare this woman be unfaithful to my son's memory and bring shame onto my family? Bring her out here, and we're going to deal with that. And when they do bring her out, Tamar pulls out the ring and the bracelet and the staff and just says, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. Do you happen to recognize them? That saves her life, and it produces these twin boys. She has twins, Perez and uh, Zerah, mentioned in verse 3. Man, if you're like many other folks and you've read Genesis 38, which is just sort of inserted there into the middle of that story of Joseph in Egypt, right? There's this this chapter that's like, well, meanwhile, back in the promised land, and you read that and you go, yeah, why is this here? Why do I have to know this? Well, here's why you have to know this. 
It is a vital connection in the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. And you might remember in the story the birth of those two boys. How during delivery, Zerah's hand came out first, making him the older brother, and the midwife tied a scarlet thread to his hand, but then the babies kind of tumbled around for a minute, and Perez came out. A unique occurrence where the younger brother was born before the older brother. There's just a lot of unique stuff in this genealogy, not the least of which is really the sad life of these two boys who if anybody asked Perez and Zerah, who's your dad, they would have pointed at Judah and said, okay, who's your grandpa? They still would have pointed at Judah. This is not a proud heritage. It's a, this, a scandal. And in the middle of the scandal, you've got names at the end of verse 3, like Hezron and Ram, and we know nothing about them, and so we can say this about them. They are nobodies as far as history was concerned, but Jesus, the Messiah, came from a bunch of nobodies so that he could save a bunch of nobodies. In verse 4, you have Amenadab, whose only claim to fame was he's the father-in-law of Moses' brother Aaron. You also have Nashon and Salmon, who are mentioned in the Old Testament as leaders of the tribe of Judah. After that short break, verse 5 picks up the scandal again. Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab. Do you remember Rahab? She's not even a Jew. She's a Gentile. In the land of Canaan that was so sinful that God commanded that everyone and everything should be destroyed, Rahab not only lived there, but she was more sinful than most. I mean, listen, Tamar pretended to be a prostitute once. Rahab made a life of it. She was plying her trade, living against the wall of Jericho, right? Servicing the traveling men who would trek down the highway after crossing the Jordan River. She was living a life of absolute sin, separated from God, not only by her Gentile heritage, but also her wicked lifestyle. And so when two Jewish spies came across the Jordan River, naturally they're not going to try to hide out in the king's house. They sought out the one who they thought would be the least respectable of all people, and that brought them to Rahab. But they also found out she had heard of the God of Israel. She told the spies, the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. And the spies returned, uh, promised to return the favor to Rahab if she would hide them. They would protect her from the coming invasion as long as she stayed inside her home and gave a signal that that was her house, that, that her and her family would be safe. And so when the battle came, Rahab hung a a scarlet cord, another scarlet cord in the story. She hung it out the window of her home as a signal that it was her and her family inside that section of the wall, but it was God himself who gave the greatest sign because the walls of Jericho came tumbling down with the sole exception of one place left standing. It was that home that had the scarlet cord sitting out the window. The Jewish people didn't save Rahab. God saved Rahab. And why did all that happen? Well, Matthew's genealogy gives us the answer to this. She was a part of God's plan for more than conquering Jericho. She was part of God's plan for conquering sin through her her perfect descendant, Jesus. Matthew tells us her descendant 
Boaz would become the main character of the book of Ruth. You can see that in verse 5, right? Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed by Ruth. Ruth is another Gentile. Worse yet, Ruth is a Moabite woman. The Moabites, look, you have to understand when the Jewish audience would have first read this and they read about Ruth, their first thought was, oh, that's the Moabite woman. And we know all of the Moabites are descendants of the incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his own daughters. It was such a shameful ancestry that there was one man in the book of Ruth who should have married Ruth before Boaz, and his response was, I'm not going to ruin my good name by associating with her. Right? It, it's, it's no great honor to have a Gentile Moabite woman in your family tree. But then in verse 6, we would hope that it would get better. After all, verse 6, well, finally, we've, we've reached David the king. It has to get better. The son of Jesse that God chose to be king of Israel. You know, God rejected the oldest sons of Jesse and took the, you know, there's that one more boy, a little freckled-faced runt named David. You realize, of course, I would never call David that to his face. Nobody would have looked at David and said, oh, I want that man to be king. But the prophet says, man does not see as God sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so finally, you think, okay, this this genealogy should start getting cleaned up a little bit. But it doesn't. Verse 6 says, David the king begat Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. This story is so infamous that Matthew doesn't even need to name the woman involved. You know who this woman is, right? Who is she? Right. He doesn't even have to say that this is Bathsheba. In fact, just ask yourself, why is this here? Why doesn't it just say, David begot Solomon? That would be true enough, right? Matthew is purposefully calling our attention to these things. David had a son named Solomon, but he had Solomon by a woman who was named Bathsheba who had been another man's wife. Although she was the granddaughter of David's most trusted advisor, David saw her and lusted after her and called her to him and got her pregnant. And then in order to cover it up, he has her husband Uriah, who was a good and faithful soldier in his army, he has Uriah murdered. We're six verses into this genealogy, and it is just as ugly as can be. And then we come to Solomon. I I promised earlier to point out where Luke and Matthew's genealogies diverge. Well, here it is. Matthew is going to trace Jesus' legal genealogy through David's son Solomon to his adoptive father Joseph. Luke traces Jesus' physical genealogy through David's son Nathan, Solomon's older brother, down through to Jesus' mother Mary. So starting right there at this point, the family tree splits and you've got these two parallel lines that are going to run for about a thousand years, but they have to come together again if there's going to be a son of David ruling as king. 
the history of Solomon is so confounding that the wisest Bible scholars end up flummoxed trying to explain his life. I mean, he confounds the imagination of just how far a man can fall because he started so well. Solomon built a temple for God. God blessed Solomon. He offered the to give Solomon whatever he asked for, and Solomon wisely only asked for more wisdom so that Solomon was granted wisdom so that I'm convinced he is the wisest man in the history of humanity with the exception of Jesus himself. And yet, the wisest man (laughs) ain't all that wise. He's still a man. Solomon fell into a life of sin and debauchery and pleasure to sort of underscore the moral failings of Solomon. We simply need to say this. He started collecting foreign women as if they were toys for him to play with. And to keep them all happy, he allowed them to bring their false idols with them and set them up in that temple for God that he had built the nation would never completely recover from the damage done by Solomon. After Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam, you see there at verse 7, Rehoboam assumes the throne. He was so unwise that the kingdom actually divides at that point early on, just two generations after David. His grandson Rehoboam starts ruining things. It, the, the luster of David's lineage is... It just falls, and it keeps falling. In the life of Rehoboam, he is king, but instead of being king of 12 tribes, 10 tribes in the north abandon him, and now David's lineage is only king of Judah and Benjamin. And there are 20 kings in all. Not all of them are listed here, but all of those names, verses 7 through 11, all of those are the names of kings of Judah. Admittedly, there are a few good ones out of the 20. But most of the kings of Judah were not good. I'm just going to save us some time and give you the one-word summations that the Old Testament gives of some of these guys, starting at verse 7. You ready? Bad, perverted, terrible, bad, devilish. There's a few good ones till you get back to words like heinous, depraved, treacherous, dreadful, degenerate, frightening, and stupid. Sounds like a list of dwarfs from a Disney movie nobody would ever want to see. And there are two guys in particular that I need to tell you about. One of them is a man that Matthew left off the list, a king named Jehoiakim. In verse 11, he would fit in there toward the beginning between Josiah and Jeconiah. Jehoiakim is Jeconiah's father. Jehoiakim was king of Judah, but unlike some of the folks on this list who tried to obey and just failed, Jehoiakim hated God, hated God's word, hated God's prophets. Jehoiakim is that king who took the scroll from Jeremiah and cut it up and threw it in the fire. In the book of Jeremiah, God tells Jehoiakim he's going to be taken off the throne and killed and his dead body is going to be thrown over the wall of Jerusalem to rot in the sun and God says I will punish him and his seed this is the genealogy of Jesus punish him and his seed and his descendants we would say well no wonder Matthew left him off the list he, didn't, he wouldn't want he would, 
he would want to hide a curse like that, right? Well, Matthew didn't need to put Jehoiakim on the list because his son, Jeconiah, was even more infamously cursed. And Jeconiah is on Matthew's list right there in verse 11. Now, here's where I told you, Jeremiah chapter 22. If you got your bookmark, Jeremiah chapter 22. I want you to see this. Jeremiah chapter 22, starting at verse 24. Jeconiah, or Coniah, he's sometimes called. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I will give you to the hands of those who seek your life and to the hand of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they desire to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Coniah, a despised broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days. For, listen, none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. And with this curse, God ended the line of David's dynasty on the throne. The very God who promised there would be a descendant of David who would rule and reign forever, that's the same God who looks at this royal line of David and says to King Jeconiah, that's it, it's over, I'm done with you and everybody who comes from you. Not a single one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne of David. And they don't. But you realize this creates a big conundrum, right? Because God promised the son of David who would rule on the throne forever, and now God promises that no son of this royal bloodline is going to sit on that throne. But Matthew is recording Jesus' legal genealogy, right? Jesus is going to be not born into this bloodline. He is adopted into this family. And he can claim the throne. Luke is recording the actual bloodline of Jesus. And remember what we said back there with Solomon and David's other son, Nathan. There's this parallel family line that's traveling down. And over the course of a thousand years, it has to come together again. So how is God going to keep his promise that there'll be a son of David to rule on his throne forever and that no blood descendant of Jeconiah is going to ever sit on that throne again. Well, it's not like God forgot. Just look one chapter over in chapter 23 of Jeremiah. Verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. 
the lineage of David's older son, Nathan, it descends unnoticed, unthought of, down to a virgin girl named Mary, the physical descendant of David, who is a spouse. She is engaged to a man named Joseph. And so Jesus uniquely is the physical descendant of David and he is part of the family line of the royal family without being born into the royal family but adopted into it. Now, is that a little bit complex? Obviously it is. But that is the best I can do to kind of pull back the curtain and show you the kind of divine mastermind, the sovereign genius who had planned this long before he ever made a promise to Abraham or a promise to David, long before he cursed Jeconiah or he blessed Mary, God had planned to do exactly this. Now back to our genealogy. We're, we're almost done. Back to our genealogy in Matthew 1. Verse 12, the kingdom begins to be restored by a man named Zerubbabel. You might remember him as the governor of Judah when Ezra returns to, from captivity. Zerubbabel is the final name in this list that we really know. The rest of those names, those men all lived between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament so that even in those 400 silent years, God was silent, but he was working silently. No man in history other than Jesus himself could fulfill this plan. This God is the divine mastermind devising this plan throughout history, unnoticed by you, unnoticed by everyone else. What do you suppose the sovereign genius in heaven is working today? Well, I tell you what, every moment of human history in the past was flowing forward to the birth of Jesus, and every moment of human history since has been flowing out of the work of Jesus. And what this genealogy looks like when we really look into it, it is far more shameful than it is beautiful. It is, it is far more scandalous than it is righteous. You study these names and you find on this list one story after another that is shady and smutty. It's depravity of every kind. Prostitutes and liars and thieves and adulterers and murderers. It ranges from stained virtue at best to wicked rebels at worst. There is deceit and debauchery and adultery and you've got idol worshipers, wicked leaders, a man who is outright cursed by God, and don't think that this is just all in the past. The depravity of humankind has not gotten any better going forward. In all of human history, there is one sole bright spot in the line, and we murdered him. Every person on this list and every individual in human history deserved death and deserved the wrath of God, and yet the one person who didn't deserve it came and he endured the wrath of God in order to save every rotten, rebellious sinner who would repent and trust in him. The record of this genealogy, it is like setting a backdrop for Jesus to shine. There's a preacher named Steve Lawson who described this like displaying a diamond. If you've ever gone and you've, you've uh, 
went shopping for a diamond, there's the jeweler will bring out a, a black cloth so that they can set the diamond on it, and it'll look all shiny and sparkly. And by shining a light, you can see every beautiful facet of that diamond. That's what this scandalous genealogy does. From Abraham to David, from Solomon to Jeconiah, every, every sinful king, every pregnant prostitute, every forgotten nobody, every lie and adultery and murder, it lays out the blackness of mankind and Jesus is set as the diamond on top of it, shining in every facet as the light of the world. And the record of your life is as equally black if who you are and what you had done and where you came from was set out on paper like this, would you want anybody to read it? Would you want the shameful history of your family and the events of your life spread out for all the world to see? More importantly, what are you going to do when God stands before you and you are in front of him being judged and he opens that book of your life. Here's what Matthew says you can do. Trust Jesus. He is the seed of Abraham who is able to bless all nations, and he is able to bless you. He's the son of David who will rule and reign on this earth as Messiah King. He willingly stepped into this wicked world of humanity to bear the exact kind of scandal and shame that's from this genealogy. And he alone can save you and I from our sins when you repent of your sin and trust in him. This list begins with his name and it ends with his name and in all of history, his name is the only one that's worth trusting. Look to him for salvation today.